Good morning, everyone. Just might look at someone next to you and just give them a little half smile. Just a half smile, not a full smile, because a full smile might be too friendly on a Sunday morning. Glad to have you here with us this morning. All right, enough of that smiling stuff. It's good. Whenever I watch that film, that little clip from Girl in a Cafe with Kelly McDonald and Bill Nye, I'm always struck by the question which nags at me is, what would I do in a similar situation like that? Trying to carry your convictions and the sense of compassion for the world around about. And here they are at a G8 meeting, trying to work through the Millennium Development Goals and sifting through which are the most important priorities on the list. What would you do in a situation just like that? Would you stick your head in your souffle? Or would you actually speak up? Would you actually decide to navigate and sort of leverage some of your influence with people after the fact? Or would you speak into it? You see, it strikes me that any person is faced every day with the question of, how do I walk with my convictions in a world that sometimes might be actually heading in a different direction? Maybe it's a workspace. Maybe it's a community group. Maybe it's within a family dynamic. In fact, the question that would-be followers of Jesus ask as they're trying to walk on a narrow kind of path is, what does it look like to actually follow Jesus in, in a world that might be sometimes heading in the opposite direction? In fact, Jesus, he said these words, wide is the path that leads away from God and towards destruction, and heaps of people walk along it. But narrow is the path that leads to life, and very few people find it. One of the followers of Jesus actually said this, so my dear family, Paul writes in a book called Romans, this is my appeal to you, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Worship like this brings your mind into line with God's. What's more, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can work out what God's will is, what's good, what's acceptable, what's complete. You see, Jesus talks about this narrow path not being robbing you of life, but actually giving you life. It's the good life, the life-giving life, the God-shaped life that leads to a future age of a new creation. And it is a good one. I suppose what Paul's trying to say is that for any followers of Jesus is that it can sometimes feel like this. Everyone's heading in one direction and I feel like I'm the one who's heading in a slightly different one. In fact, not slightly Completely different direction altogether. I suppose he was trying to say it comes part and parcel with walking a narrow kind of road. In fact, would-be followers of Jesus are the first ones who say, we see our roles in this world as being the ones who reflect God and his life back into this world. In fact, they're the ones who say, we have so been enamored by who Jesus is. We've come to see in him that he is the son of God, the one who lived and who died and who rose again, the one who actually is the forgiver of my soul and my life. In fact, we're the first ones to put their hands up and say, I am part of the problem. In fact, I don't always keep my own word the way it should be. I don't even keep my own standards all the time, never alone God's. In fact, I need forgiveness. I'm part of his, the problem as well. In fact, they're the first ones to stick their hands up and say, I've received his goodness, his graciousness, his forgiveness. And what I'm trying to do in this world is to announce the virtuous deeds of the one who called me out of darkness 
into his amazing light. In fact, would-be followers of Jesus walking on the narrow road are the ones who say, I've been recreated from the inside out, so I'm looking forward to the time when God is going to bring his future creation back into the here and now. In fact, I'm the one who realizes that this kind of new creation, this future age into the present is being kept safe for me right now in the heavens while we're being kept safe by God's power through faith for a rescue that is already waiting to be revealed at a final time. Followers of Jesus look forward to a day and an age in which God's heaven is manifestly seen here on earth, not distant, far away, but close to, proximal, just if you like, like C.S. Lewis said, behind the wall, at the end of the wardrobes, God's new creation order where he's going to put all wrongs back to rights is the time and the space that we are looking forward to. In fact, followers of Jesus say, that is my true destiny. And so I head towards just that. What does it look like for a would-be follower of Jesus who wants to shine that life, live with that vision, to posture themselves in this world? Because that's the question we're asking over these three weeks. Last week, this week, and next week. How does a follower of Jesus posture themselves in sometimes a world that seems like it's out of joint with the direction that you might be heading in. And so last week, we looked at two things. Sometimes followers of Jesus can posture themselves as being the donters. Don't, 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 don't. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't eat those Haribos. Don't do that kind of thing. I don't like that behavior. I don't like that thinking. I don't. But what I discover is that people who are told don't rarely decide, oh, that's so right, I want to do exactly what you do. In fact, I find it often has the opposite effect, don't you? In fact, if I could say it another way, it'd be like this. When you capture someone's heart, the hands follow. What we can often be enamored by is that if we can tell people to use their hands in particular ways, that it'll have a flow-on effect to their heart. Jesus is completely different. He actually wants to transform human hearts. Once the heart is captured, then the hands follow. It kind of makes sense. In fact, what we talked about last week was shaping two powerful narratives that for someone who wants to posture themselves and answer the question, what does a would-be follower of Jesus, how should they posture themselves in an ever-changing world? They need to live with these two stories. One was about a good Samaritan. And, and what we discovered from that is that people need to be who want to follow Jesus, lovers of humanity. Jesus had this powerful effect on people. Rather than being afraid of being contaminated by people, he actually ran to them because he saw the infinite worth and value in every single human being, no matter gender, race, sexuality. Jesus was someone who ran towards people. He was a lover of humanity. The second story we kind of anchored ourselves down to was two men going up to the temple to pray. And, and in that, there was one who actually stood far back from God and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And yet it says, Jesus said that he went that day back down off that mountaintop experience justified before God because of that attitude. He was, if you like, a liver with humility. And if you like, it's these two balancing stories that we need to start with when it comes to understanding how do I walk down a narrow road with a world that sometimes feels out of joint with me. So those two powerful stories. Today what we want to do is add one extra story. On top of that, these three will be the shaping ones that you can carry with you wherever you go. And the story goes something like this. If you want to follow, 
Uh, if you've got a Bible there, if you want to look at a version uh, app, it's John chapter 8. This is how it goes. Jesus had been performing his deeds, his miraculous uh, powers, displaying them for people, teaching them, walking with them. And they were asking intuitively the question we've been asking on our Wednesday nights at our journeys group, who is Jesus? Some were saying, is he the Messiah? Is he a king? Is he the son of God? Is he the prophet? Is he a crazy man? Who is he? And this is where John picks up the story. They all went off home and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In the morning, he went back to the temple, the place where the magnificent building that was his father's home was, was dwelt right there in the middle of Jerusalem. And all of the people came to him and he sat down, as would be his practice, and he taught them. Here's Jesus standing on the temple mount, probably in the space where, where the, the men and women could gather together. And he did what he would naturally do in his father's house. He would teach people. And in that space, in the midst of his teaching, we have some scribes and Pharisees who bring a woman to him who's been caught in the very act of adultery. And they stand her, it says, in the very middle of that teaching environment. Kind of not like the lesson plan if you're a teacher here today that you kind of want to have interrupted in any of your classes. But it's a setup. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, these keepers of the law, are experts in Torah. They know God's laws inside out, back to forward, that they, with a fine-tooth comb, could run through every particular law. And it's a setup because they want to see if they can trap Jesus in some of the words and the way in which he reads the Torah. And so in the midst of this lesson, they find a woman. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? There's just the woman. There's not the man there. I always wonder, where's the man? Because I was always taught when I grew up, it takes two to tango. But there's these men, they've probably been spying out on a situation. And they've realized there's something happening in a house. Just And, and so these scribes, these lawyers, these Pharisees, they somehow get whiff of what's going on. And they bust into this room and they drag out a woman caught in the very act of breaking her marriage vows. And they leave the man and they drag the woman right into the middle of this scene on top of this temple. Now it's a distance away, so they would have dragged her through the streets, humiliating. Dragged her right into the middle of this scene where Jesus is teaching in his father's house and they stand her right in the middle of all of the people, men and women alike. And they stand her there vulnerable and frightened as these men are just filled with anger and frustration and they are wanting to set up Jesus feel it see it and then they say this to him teacher this woman was caught in the very act of breaking her marriage vows in the law in the Torah God commanded us to stone people like this what do you say You see, Jesus knows his law. He knows Torah. He knows in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, that it says that if uh, someone is caught in the act of adultery, legally you can stone them. But Jesus also knows that he has come to give life and not to rob it. So what does he do? What would you do? 
He did the only thing that a good, wise Jesus person would do. (laughs) It says the very next thing he does, seeing this woman vulnerable and frightened in the middle of the crowd, these fermenting, falling men who are just carrying stones ready to enact the deed. It says that he pauses and he stoops down to the ground and he takes his finger and he begins to draw in the dust, as you would. Now, there's always this speculation about what was he drawing? Uh, Is he sketching out the Decalogue, the kind of the summary of the Ten Commandments, just to remind people? Or is he just doodling in the dirt? Is he playing ancient noughts and crosses, just buying some time? Yeah. Kids, if you're ever in a dilemma and you're not sure what to do, and, and the teacher puts you on a spot, just kneel down out of your chair. <laughs> yeah. Take your finger. Place it to the carpet below. Pause for a moment. And he starts to sketch out on the dusty surface, whatever he does. And then after a moment, you could imagine, can't you, the pausing, the... Waiting the. He rises again to his feet and he says, Whichever of you is without sin, go on, go on, throw the first stone. You see, Jesus is reminding them to live with humility. Take the Torah that you are so enamored with keeping right now and apply it to yourselves. Hmm. And then he goes back to his doodling on the ground. We don't know how long. But if you were a bystander there that day, you would have heard the thudding of stones returning to earth. Starting with the older people. And then heading towards the younger. After some more time, Jesus rises again. Where are they, woman? Hasn't anyone condemned you? Nobody, sir. Well then, I don't condemn you either. Off you go. Hey, from now on, don't keep that sinning stuff. And so she departs. Powerful story, isn't it? Lovers of humanity, livers with humility. It seems as though Jesus has this powerful ability to be able to balance his convictions and compassion Side by side. You see, what Jesus doesn't say here, he doesn't turn a blind eye and say, oh, it's actually okay. We all have our own little vices. You've got yours, I've got mine. And so we'll just accommodate for them. We'll turn a blind eye. No, he doesn't say that. He actually holds his conviction. But at the same time, he's filled with compassion because he didn't come to destroy people's lives. He's going to liberate them. And he holds this compassion almost like, if you like, in a balance between the two. 
Both not wanting to turn a blind eye and say it doesn't matter, those things. Don't. Actually, you know, breaking vows and, of any light can be destructive to families and individuals. And to, you name it, the destruction is there. But conviction and compassion, balanced out in equal measure together. He doesn't pick up a stone and say, well, that's right, I'm going to. He's filled with compassion. In fact, he seems to have this uncanny ability to walk a tightrope balancing these two things and begs people who follow him to do the same. Now, this is wrought with danger, is it not? You see, the older I get, and I'm getting a little older, someone reminded me last night that I had lots of grey hair. A sign of wisdom, I imagine. sign of stress really most of the time. However, besides that, what I find the older I get, things become a bit greyer. Things become a little bit more complex. The black and white that I loved when I was younger kind of morphs into a new way where you realise the complexities of life. And so you, you realise it's a balancing act is actually quite difficult. And yet Jesus, lover of humanity, liver with humility, seems to be able to balance, if you like, Conviction and compassion. You see, one of the challenges I find as I try and walk a skinny road with Jesus is that there's more than enough people who applaud you and they say, we respect you for having convictions that you hold to until the moment and time in which those convictions clash against the prevailing culture. And then there's sometimes whispers. Why don't you just put those things aside? Sometimes there's shouts, I can't believe you hold an opinion like that. You should drop it, stop it, stop it now. And I find that it's incredibly difficult, don't you, to walk with this sense of conviction and conviction, <laughs> this conviction and compassion. But yet it's the road that Jesus walked down himself. See, if you like, if you're a follower of Jesus or you're wondering what it would look like... <sighs> To walk with him, it seems as though he wants you to live with humility. He wants you to love humanity, but he also wants you to balance, if you like, this idea of compassion with your convictions. And to do that is going to require a great deal of courage along the way. You see, early followers of Jesus, they had courage like you would not believe. Nero in AD 64 came to the throne. They were expecting great things from Nero, but it took a dive and went south very quickly. Between 64 and 68, there was a great fire in Rome and he wanted to appease the masses. So what did he do? He picked on this little group called the Christians, the actual atheists, they call them, because they only believed in one God. That's where the term comes from, rather than accepting all of the Roman pantheon. And so Nero, looking for a scapegoat, what he did was, kids block your ears, is that he would actually hunt down these people who said, we believe Jesus is the Lord and the true Caesar and the boss of the world, they would, he would get them and he would impale them on stakes. And it says that he would actually light his colonnade of the nighttime whilst he was running his circus games in which the Christians were actually fed to wild animals, men, women, children alike. And he would dip them and roll them in tar and light them as his torches of a nighttime. Wow. But those people still would not, if you like, desist on saying they believed that Jesus was the... In fact, some of them said, you can, someone once said, you can cut out my tongue, you can pluck out my eye, but I so believe in the resurrection of Jesus that I'm going to get them back. <laughs> you see, these early followers of Jesus were so filled with this sense of conviction 
about who Jesus was, but they balanced it with compassion that by AD 350, one in two Roman citizens, 30 million out of 60 million, said, I want to follow that Jesus too. Wow. You see, we're here whispers all the time, don't we? Drop your convictions. Why are you doing that? That's ridiculous. It's much more fun on the wide road. And it can be for a time. But the question our generation is asking more than ever now is where is the good life to be found? Jesus would beg to say, I'm not robbing you of life. You live my way, the fully human way, and you, it'll be costly, but it will give life. How does this work out in a work environment? It's getting warm in here, or is it just me? Can someone hit some buttons? Because we want to get some air in this place just to finish off. Is that I had a friend who was probably thinking to himself in his workspace, and he was working for a large kind of industry. In fact, he was working for an airline company, and he was in the baggage department. And, and him trying to juggle all these things together, loving humanity, living with humility, and this idea of conviction, compassion, he found himself in a workspace that was a very blokey bloke workspace. <laughs> And in that blokey bloke workspace, he said, it kind of was a bit rough, rough language, just rough. And he said, I noticed when I went into the workspace that there were these, there was these pictures of, of females, can believe it or not, posted up everywhere. And these females weren't wearing much clothing at all. He said, it was just kind of normative workspace that I was in. And, and, and don't get me wrong, this guy has nothing wrong. He doesn't see anything wrong with the female body form. In fact, it is amazing and can be beautiful. Let me just get that out there. However, he noticed that in this particular place, the posters weren't up there to um, appreciate the beauty of the female art form. It was more to actually dehumanize the women in their situation. In fact, what it was trying to do in their own lives and was to keep them fixated on wrapping their thinking around the whole pornography industry. And so he said, I'm in this workplace and I'm wanting to balance conviction and compassion and I'm wondering what to do. And I know that those women, when they're looking at us, they don't really love us. Um, in fact, they're probably supplying a habit of their own. It's dehumanizing for them. It's dehumanizing for the guys because they start thinking about women differently. And if they're married, they start expecting some things from their wives to, to be and that puts pressure on. And it's kind of, it leads nowhere and you need more of it, more of it, more of it. What am I going to do? So he said, I know. As is loving humility, living... Uh, uh, loving humanity, uh, trying to balance conviction and compassion, he said, I'm going to do two things. Courage. He said, so afterwards, these posters didn't belong to anyone. So at the end of every workday, what he would do in his workspace, he would go up and he would take some of these posters, in fact, all of them, and he would take them down and he would kind of fold them away and put them to the side. And then the next day, he said, they'd come back and they'd go, where are they all gone? And they'd put up other ones. And he said, the second thing I did, because I want to affirm things and not just abandon stuff, he says, I realized that a lot of these blokes were married and had kids. So he said, at lunchtime, they would also play their videos as well. So there weren't just images on the wall, but there was kind of like a, a TV set running 24-7. And so they could sit there and eat their lunch and kind of, you know, uh, you know, you know. <laughs> so he said, this is what, I said, what did you do? He said, this is what I did. He said, I would sit at the table like this with my lunch, and they would be there and the TV would be behind. 
And I would engage them at one thing I could infirm in their lives very much was their family. So I'd ask, how's your wife doing? (laughs) How many kids did you say you have? Tell me about your kids. He said it was really hard for the men to actually keep up this discontinuity between going, ha, 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 and my kids, my wife. He said after a while, it started to take effect, so much so that after a few months, one of the old blokes from the workplace came back and he said it was just the most telling comment. He said this, this guy came back and just only spent a short while in our workspace and he looked around and he went, huh, this workplace has changed. I don't get it. I don't know what it is here, but it's just changed. And walked out again. He said, I, I, I think in that space, my words I was trying to balance conviction with compassion, lover of humanity, liver with humility. I wasn't pointing fingers at anyone. I was just wondering, how do I live out my convictions in one particular way? We're going to have the band. They're going to come and play a song in a moment. But I want to ask you here this morning. Would be followers of Jesus need to keep their eyes fixed on him? In a very complex world where we're wondering at times, how do I keep this balance? Because I find that when you run to one side, if you're so on about conviction, 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 it can be easy to lose a sense of compassion. Don't you think? Sometimes you can get so caught up in being compassionate, compassionate, compassionate that you might stand for anything and everything. You lose your convictions. Jesus seems to invite us. How do we do that? So I've been taking this class at Aquination. Anyone here a member of Aquination? Just going to do a limber up for a moment. And there's a class called Body Balance. I've been doing that class because I'm trying to build up for this marathon thing we're doing November 27. Anyone want to join us, please do. So... And the lady who instructs us, she goes, you know, the best way to balance, the best way to balance, keep your balance, is to fix your eye on one set point in the room or on the floor. Has anyone tried this before? So when you do that, it gives you balance. Yep. I'm looking at the chair. It says when you balance and keep your eyes fixed, It's amazing what you can do. And if you do that, this is a hard one, this could really hurt here, is that you can navigate sometimes the most difficult things. (laughs) Bible says... You want to walk this road, this narrow road, this skinny road, this one that seems out of joint with the world at times. There's lots of good stuff and good people in this world. You just haven't met Jesus yet. And they say, keep your eyes fixed upon the author and the perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame for you and for me, wherever you are. That's how you do it. See, next week I want to talk about sexuality, homosexuality. Wow, I'm looking forward to that so much. Actually, I am. 
because we need to balance all these three things. Lover of humanity, liver with humility, compassion and conviction. And fix our eyes on the author. So as you hear this song now, I'm going to actually invite you to do something. In two weeks' time, we have an engage activity. We're still working out who's filling the spaces for that. I don't, I don't know it. I'm, I'm actually at arm's length with it, but it's going to, we're going to find out in the next week uh, for Lee's role. However, I'd like you to open up your heart and mind today to God. If you're not following Jesus, you could do this the same. God speaks, not just to the inside. And what I'd invite you to do is this song's being played and say, God, Jesus, what do you want me to do for Engage? And whatever thought he drops into your head, whatever person he brings to your mind, whatever work colleague, community person, then I'm going to invite you to make that your Engage activity. Yeah? You might need some courage. You might need some other people to help you. Go outside, write down your activity on the table. You say, it's Troy and I need four other people. That's the engage activity. Because God's spoken to you. Jesus has stirred your mind and you're going to act on it with courage in two weeks' time. Is that fair? So you might want to sing this song. You might just want to listen in. But mostly, I'd invite you to fix your eyes. Wherever you are with God today, he loves you. He forgives. He washes clean. Smell of an oily rag of faith. He runs to you when you turn to him.